Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Scripture says, Acts chapter 14, for many tribu- through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that is the way that God has designed it. The life of a Christian can be summarized in this first question, a familiar question we've all heard. We might not know the source. It's the Westminster Catechism, which asks, what is the chief end of man? That means, what is man's ultimate purpose? Yeah, the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God. And enjoy Him for eternity. Amen? And the ultimate demonstration of our love for God isn't isn't only when things are good. An ultimate demonstration of our love is often displayed through praising Him even during life's most difficult experiences. We think of Job from last week and what he had to suffer, yet he would not raise uh, his fist or his voice against God. Isn't that ironic? That through suffering, God will be praised. And isn't it ironic that the supreme manifestation of divine worship, supreme manifestation of divine worship, is seen through a human sacrificing their life in agony. Isn't that ironic? It isn't as you would think it would be. Meanwhile, the unsaved, or or what Scripture refers to as the natural man, has not yet been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The natural man would, and and, and virtually always does, he concludes that any all-powerful God, oh, he'll only bless those whom he loves with with material uh, prosperity. That's referred to as the prosperity gospel, or the health and wealth gospel. But that's not the conclusion that we see in Scripture. That's a conclusion of fashioning God after an image of man. The writer of Ecclesiastes, he is a preacher, he is a herald of divine wisdom and a student of the sincere human experience. That's what endears this letter to us. (laughs) I've heard multiple times in this very difficult epistle, People say, this is just so encouraging. And how can that be that, that a, a writer who's speaking of the troublesome nature of our existence on earth can be so encouraging to us? It's because he's speaking truth. He's speaking sincerely of the human experience. And, and, and Solomon declares, he goes, you know, I, I have seen it all under the sun. And his conclusion is that, well, life gets ironic. It gets ironic. Uh, There will be some things that will baffle the mind. They don't seem logical to us under the sun, but they are nonetheless true. They're nonetheless true. And we're going to talk about a few of those today as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Solomon writes, I have seen 
everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous, and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a man, a wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. You know, the the scriptural paradigm, the model that we see in the Bible uh, that we as Christians embrace, it appears completely illogical to the unsaved man. Completely illogical. Storing up wealth during... This life, Solomon uh, declares once again, it's futile. It's futile. It's a lifetime of futility. Your translation might say days, but it, it means the accumulation of his days. That's why the NASB says, my lifetime of futility, uh, Solomon calls it. The pagan, at the same time, says, are you kidding me? Accumulation of materialism? It's not what we're here for. He who dies of the most toys wins, it is said. Oh, and you, get no, you don't get to go around a second time. There are no second chances. You have to live your best life now, all right? That's what the unbeliever thinks. But the spiritually regenerated mind sees futility in this life of accumulation. Uh, and instead of having everything now, The Christian sees this life as a period of investment for the next. Because Christ Jesus said in Luke 12.33, Store up your treasure in heaven. It's true. We as Christians, we are grateful when we have an amount of money. We're grateful for that. Because since the fall of Adam, society has not and it will not function without some kind of exchange currency. It always has, whether it's gold or whether it's bartering or some sort of currency. It has always functioned uh, with the exchange of a money. But we don't love money. We don't love it. For that is a root of all kinds of evil, the love of money. Instead, we use wealth to glorify God. So the godly woman concludes, you know, we may be living in a material world, but I'm not a material girl. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) And as God has given each a measure of faith, we remain in a constant battle with our flesh to be generous and to give away as much as we can. Solomon spent a lifetime. If you were with us, if if you're a new visitor, this lifetime of futility that Solomon again returns to is, is we saw it back in chapters 2 and 3, 1, 2, and 3, even chapter 5. But he accumulated everything. 
and it just left him feeling empty. So he, he is now warning us, don't make the mistakes that I have done. I, I had a lifetime of futility, and it left me feeling empty. And he laments that his life was, was broadly wasted through that accumulation, something that can never satisfy. And the wisdom of Ecclesiastes exposes, folks, one of the greatest heresies in our church today. Heard about it in Bible Life Group this morning briefly. Briefly. The prosperity gospel. Here's a, here's a really brief summary. Really brief summary. A false gospel says... Place yourself under the Mosaic Law. Give 10% to church. And the rest is yours to find ways to enjoy. And in return for law keeping, God promises to keep on blessing you. Folks, that is a false gospel. But wealthy people love the tithe system. They do. Wealthy people love the tithe system system why 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 do they love tithing so much it is because for someone who makes a million dollars a year for them they get a sweet tax deduction through tithing and a cool 900 cash to spend on themselves they like that a good tax deduction it alleviates their conscience they feel better about themselves and then the whole balance then is theirs to enjoy in fact, sometimes it doesn't happen here. I've never experienced this at this location. But, but I know from talking with other pastors, sometimes wealthy people will pressure pastors into enforcing the tithe on the whole church. If there's ever financial problems, they always say, you've got to start preaching the tithe. Turn it back to Levitical law. Um, unbelievers love the prosperity gospel, folks. They love it. Uh, they will flock to it all day long. It alleviates their conscience, forgiving, and gives them license to buy exotic cars and gold rings with the rest. It lets them do what they want with their money. Meanwhile, or at the same time, tithing places a heavy burden on a family of four scraping by on a modest $30,000 a year. Puts a burden on them. And by contrast, the biblical New Testament threshold of cheerful, generous, and sacrificial giving, according to how God prospers each, any man or woman can achieve that. Any man or woman can give cheerfully, generously, and sacrificially. But it places a higher level of participation on the wealthy, uh, while the prosperity gospel and tithing offers an easier path of accumulation. That's a lifetime of futility, folks. A lifetime of futility. Uh, being rich in a believer is not impossible. But it isn't easy. It isn't easy. In fact, it could be as hard as a camel going through the eye of the needle. But how are wealthy people saved? In the same way all of us are saved. It's a gift of God. It's a miracle that anybody is saved. Solomon's learned that storing up treasure on earth results in a lifetime of futility, uh, but those who prosper appear as though God is blessing them, while those who are poor in this world appear as though they are living a futile life. 
But God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. James 2, verse 5. So even though they, the poor, enjoy no obvious, observable benefit during this lifetime, they belong to God. Isn't that ironic? It's not what you would think. The lifetime of futility is found in the place that you would not expect. The lifetime of devotion to God and to Christ is found in a place that you would not expect. Be found at the woman with two mites, giving what she can give. Isn't life ironic? Secondly, in verse 15, the righteous often die young. They often die young. Solomon says, I have seen there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. The term wickedness there implies an observably immoral life, things that you can see. You know, we as Christians, we we correctly view a long life as a blessing from God. But it is never an indicator of righteousness. You know, Hugh Hefner, he was about as morally corrupt as a human being could get. But he died with a net worth of around 50 million bucks at a ripe old age of 91. Jim Elliott, whom I mentioned, I think just last week or two weeks ago, who died in Ecuador with a team of missionaries, end of the spear, by the way, that... That uh, movie is free right now at this time on Tubi. If you've got that app on your TV, it's free for the viewing. A little bit of a violent movie. Be careful with the kids. But nonetheless, it documents, chronicles that team that went down to Ecuador. Jim Elliott, he gave his young life as a sacrifice for the gospel. And he was martyred at 28. So does any measure of wealth success, health, or long life validate a person's righteousness? No. Not even close. You wouldn't naturally conclude this is how God works. That the good die young. Isn't that ironic? It's ironic. Next in verse 16, Solomon says, Do not be excessively righteous. And do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Now that is a statement that is unexpected for a Christian. We look at that and we're like, whoa, what do we do with that? Because Jesus, the Son of God, was sinless and perfectly righteous. And by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives, we are in a continual process of being conformed to that image of God's beloved Son. We are to be increasing in righteousness. How then is it possible to be too righteous? Well, your discerning mind already has concluded that something isn't as it appears in this verse. Something's up. Something's up. We know Solomon isn't advocating moral laxity. We know that because in the very next verse he also says, do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? 
It's a hard passage to understand, hard, hard for us to understand until, until we recognize that moral extremes are typically where religious people migrate. Moral extremes are typically where religious people migrate. So I think a proper understanding is found through observing Solomon's use of the words excessively righteous and excessively wicked. Don't be either of those. Before he understood the gospel of salvation, Martin Luther, the reformer Martin Luther, he was an excessively religious Augustinian monk. Martin Luther took religious, uh, religious righteousness to the extreme. To the extreme. He practiced excessive fasting, undertook difficult religious pilgrimages. His confessions of sin were so frequent and so detailed, it's reported that upon listening, the priests got bored. Nothing to confess. Luther obsessively thought that righteousness was accumulated through works. Boy, that all changed. That all changed when Luther Luther read Romans chapter 4. Where the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 4, says, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, Credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That was the passage that turned Martin Luther's heart. Eventually, he became a descendant of Abraham by faith. Luther believed God that faith does not come through works, but it comes through uh, a gift of God. Um, he discovered good works are not a means of achieving salvation, but that our good works are a result of salvation. For Ephesians 2 verse 8 assures, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we are not, cre- uh, we are not saved through good works, we are saved through faith as a gift of God. Uh, we are also, though, made new creatures for the purpose of good works. That pre-conversion life of Martin Luther, it assures, it assures that it is possible to look righteous, even excessively righteous, without even understanding the gospel of salvation. Folks, there are religious affiliations today who are excessively formal, extremely strict, 
painfully dreary. People who nobody really wants to hang around because they're so excessively religious. Well, they, that, translate that just means they're no fun at all. They can just never have a good time. They're so uptight. Can't laugh. Uh, some have, like Luther, pursued salvation through works that God never asked them to do. It's legalism. It's referred to as legalism. In a steep and direct contrast to that, there are also religious affiliations who preach no moral compass at all. They, they've jettisoned the Bible entirely. Uh, they don't believe the Ten Commandments. Therefore, they have no moral barometer to comprehend what it means to love your neighbor or to love God. And these eventually drift to exceedingly wicked, or we would refer to it as licentiousness. Because they have no compass. They have no Bible. Even to the extreme that these churches sanction today, and I'll put that in quotes, quote-unquote churches sanction today homosexuality and abortion. Jesus' half-brother Jude wrote concerning them in this epistle, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. If you look further into Jude's letter, you read through it, it's short, you should read it. If you look further into Jude's letter, he describes these excessively wicked people uh, as having crept into the local church and having plunged into the error of Sodom, imitating the behavior of Cain, who was a murderer, like-minded to Balaam or Balaam as a prophet who bartered religion for money. Boy, enter the name of your favorite prosperity preacher right there. Trading religion for money. So there are two ditches. There are two ditches of a religious extremism that are much more often traveled, much more often traveled than the narrow road to Christ that is between. You've got re, uh, rigid legalism on one side. You've got licentiousness and no moral compass on the other side. And at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, we are neither immoral, that means licentious, nor do we fabricate our own artificial standard of righteousness that's not found in the Bible. And we strive to enjoy the grace of God by doing what? Keep it between the ditches, folks. Keep it out of legalism, judging someone's relationship with God by how they dress or how they appear, and keep it out of the other ditch where people are basically ditching a moral code of any kind. I think the summary in verse 18, I think it encourages this type of spiritual balance. It says, it is good that you grasp one thing, 
and also not let go of the other? For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. We approach God in worship on Sunday morning, embracing both of Solomon's commands. We are not excessively self-righteous, nor are we excessively wicked and thereby fools. I think the principle is clear enough. You look at it. But it also helps to cite the opinion of a respected theologian. So I'll do that. Philip Ryken, he writes this. Philip Ryken. Quote, this verse is difficult to understand, but when the preacher tells us to take hold of this and to not withhold our hand from that, he's looking back at the advice he gave in verses 16 and 17. He's saying something like, The right life walks the path between two extremes, shunning self-righteousness, but not allowing one's native wickedness to run its own course. When we do this, we will avoid the death and destruction that will surely befall us if we live sinfully or self-righteously. Unquote. That's a good summary. I think that's what Solomon is telling us here. We live in a day. We live in a day where many assume that religious fanatics, religious fanatics are the most devoted to God. Therefore, they are the most pleasing to God when they're in the extremes. But Solomon actually warns, don't fall into the extremism of either ditch. God prefers a spiritually balanced person over religious zealots. Isn't that ironic? It's not what you would think. It's not what people would conclude. You would think, well, someone who's very, very serious and strict, they are very, very godly. Just ironic. Verse 19, we find this is a good one. This is a good one. Solomon says, Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Again, kind of a Difficult verse at first glance. But think about it this way. Who are you going to go to for advice? Do you pursue divine wisdom? The Word of God, which we discovered last week, arises off the pages of Scripture. Or would you rather rather get advice from a panel or, or a council of judges? Let's say, let, let's just imagine maybe 10 respected rulers of a city. Where do you go? To God or to man? Rulers in that day, they sat in the city gate. They, they served as a, as a source of wisdom. They served as um, uh, advice. And they would render judgment on grievances. Small court cases. They would decide what is right. But are city councils always wise? Divine wisdom and the fear of the Lord offer a source of greater strength than even the collective opinion of a council of secular leaders. Last week we learned that God's wisdom always delivers. Always delivers. An ancient book, get this, an ancient book 
A letter in Ecclesiastes that is written 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago. Offers you superior counsel to the Supreme Court of the United States. Isn't that something? Better counsel in the Word of God than the highest courts in the land. Isn't that ironic? Completely ironic. You would not expect it. And in verse 20, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually do, does good and who never sins. Well, that ain't hard, to, ain't hard to believe, is it? That's actually a pretty simple one to believe. Again, the, the, the limitations of mankind, the, the limitations of man and woman, the sinful, fallen existence that we have are on full display here. The world thinks that fallen humanity through science can fix all the world's problems. We can come to a way to fix all of this. And our greatest hope, they say, lies in man to save us from self-destruction. That's how we're going to do it. Man's going to save us. It's the end of the world as we know it. Only the government can come through, right? But collectively, collectively, the greatest bodies of, legis- uh, of legislature don't even have the common sense to balance a budget. Isn't that ironic? Mankind will fail you. He cannot save you from the pit of destruction. But the wisdom of God always delivers. Always delivers every time. And through faith in Christ, even delivers from the pit of hell, your soul will be delivered. Contrary to what you hear on the news every day, folks, man does not possess the potential to save himself or save this world. He can't do it. Isn't that ironic? It's not what you would expect. It's not what you would hear. And finally, since sinful men and women will surely fail you, we, we are so flawed. Are we not? We are so flawed. Don't take what people say too personally. Don't take it too seriously. Verse 21, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. Well, Solomon isn't suggesting you never take anything that is spoken seriously. Instead, he says, don't take everything that you might have overheard seriously, especially if it's secondhand or or through an accidental eavesdropping. Is there such thing as an accidental eavesdropping? Yeah, I might have messed that up there. Nothing accidental about it. He's talking about things that you were never meant to hear in the first place, folks. I imagine, just like you, you know, I imagine all of us have really had some doozies spoken to our face, right? Some rude things, things said to my face even I have had, um, those I generally take at face value most of the time uh, because they're usually intended to be taken seriously. Now, you guys, you're all really nice guys. 
and gals. That, that doesn't happen here, so this doesn't apply to you. But over the years, boy, I think you would agree, if, if we gave credence to everything that was rudely said to us, it would paralyze our lives. I wouldn't be in ministry. It would paralyze our work that we do. It paralyzes our families. I can only imagine what is probably said behind our backs. Folks, you have got to be able to overcome discouragement. You've got to be able to overcome discouragers. You've got to to succeed in life. It doesn't matter whether you are in business, whether you are in education, whether it is managing your family, or whether you are in ministry. Satan and his servants are out to discourage. Don't take everything that you hear said so seriously. Um, If you hear something, don't get so easily offended. Have grace. Why? Why are you going to have grace? Somebody read the rest of it. Because you've done the same thing yourself. And not everything that you said was serious either. Solomon says, For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. So why do we get so offended when we hear something secondhand? It's passed around. Folks, we need to be able to have grace and move on. We've all stumbled in so many ways. This is a good, good reminder that mutual encouragement and stimulation to love and good deeds is the reason that we come together to worship on Sundays. But if we are not to rely even on the judgment of ten rulers of a city, why would we let the opinion of one careless person derail our future? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't drop out of school. Don't fold up your business. Persevere through life. I would have quit ministry years ago if I would have, would have been listening to the negative opinion of one person. Don't do it. You have to be able to overcome the words of discouragement to succeed in life. You would think that everyone would be there to help you Isn't life ironic? Stick in there. Stick in there. I began by asking today, isn't isn't it ironic that the supreme manifestation of divine worship is displayed in a life readily surrendered to die in agony through the giving of one's life? Who would have ever thought that By one man giving his life, he could save the world. Who would conclude that? But Jesus, the Son of God, did just that. There's only one way. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved. Isn't that ironic? It's not what the world would think. But we have been called. We've been called by His very name to come forward and worship. And the gospel that Christ died bearing our sins, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness to them. But to we who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. 
What a blessing. What a blessing.